Good morning, welcome, especially if you're visiting. My name is Tim Fox. I'm the pastor here. Uh, Our church has been going through uh, the book of Samuel. Uh, We're in the part that we now call 2 Samuel, chapter 9. I can't remember the page number. It's somewhere in the 200s if you're using one of the Blue Church Bibles. Uh, If you're new to the Bible, big numbers are chapters, little numbers are verses. We're going to do 2 Samuel, chapters 9 and 10 this morning. I'll read all of 9 and a little bit into 10 to give you a flavor of what's going on there. 2 Samuel 9. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There's still a son of Jonathan. He's crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He's in the house of Maker, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What's your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both of his feet. After this, the king of the Ammonites died, and Hanan his son reigned in his place. And David said, I will deal loyally with Hanan the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. So David sent by his servants to console him concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the Ammonites. But the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanan their lord, Do you think because David has sent comforters to you that he's honoring your father? Hasn't David sent his servants to you to search the city and spy it out and to overthrow it? So Hanan took David's servants and shaved off half the beard of each and cut off their garments in the middle at their hips and sent them away. When it was told David, he sent to meet them, for the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, Remain at Jericho until your beards have grown and then return. When the Ammonites saw that they had become a stench to David, The Ammonites sent and hired the Syrians of Beth Rehob and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers, and the king of Makkah with 1,000 men, and the men of Tob, 12,000 men. And when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the host of the mighty men. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Old Testament prophet Jeremiah says this, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, 
that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love and justice and righteousness in the earth. Lord, we ask that whatever we might be tempted to be boasting in today, that your word today would teach us to boast in you as the God who shows steadfast love to the weak and the needy. Show us that this morning, especially in and through your son, Jesus. For we ask it confidently in his name. Amen. Uh, I gave all of you fair warning that going through the books of Samuel, because they deal so much with God's king, was going to mean uh, extraordinarily uh, common instances of me referring to Lord of the Rings. My favorite character, speaking of Lord of the Rings, uh, I think my favorite character in the whole thing is Sam Gamgee. Uh, This humble gardener, wow, Presbyterians are really (laughs) feeling it for Sam Gamgee. The humble gardener uh, who gets swept up into this great quest to destroy the evil ring of Sauron. Uh, Some of the most moving passages to me in the books or in the movies are those that depict Sam's faithfulness to Frodo, his friend and his boss. Uh, Early on in the story, Sam nearly drowns because he swims after Frodo when Frodo tries to leave Sam behind out of concern for his safety. Uh, Then at the end of the story, Sam literally is carrying Frodo up the slopes of Mount Doom because the ring has so ruined Frodo mentally and physically that he can literally not walk anymore. And so Sam has to carry him all the way up to the top of the mountain. To the very end, to the very precipice of death itself, Sam remains faithful. Our passage today is about the faithfulness of King David. Uh, These two chapters, uh, though they are very different stories, they both revolve around the Hebrew word hesed. If you want to sound really legit, you have to take that first part of it and you make it really guttural. You go, chesed is how you say it. Uh, This is a Hebrew word often translated as steadfast love. Uh, In old-timey translations, it'll be translated as loving kindness. Sometimes it gets translated as loyalty. Uh, Whether it's being used to refer to people or to God himself, the basic idea is that somebody is keeping their promises, particularly... They're promises to somebody who's in a position of weakness or inferiority. Uh, It's one of the most important words for understanding the character of God. Uh, When Moses requests to see God's glory on Mount Sinai, and God says, I won't show you my glory, no one can see my glory, uh, but I'll do this. I will uh, pass by you, you'll see my backside, and I will proclaim my name to you. Uh, And so when God does that up on Mount Sinai, this is Exodus chapter 34, Besides his own, his own name, Yahweh, uh, this word hesed is the only word that God repeats twice. God says this when he passes by Moses. He says, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, there's that word, and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love, there it is again, keeping steadfast love for a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. When God defines to us who he is, This is the word, this is one of the words, one of the most important words he uses to tell us. And so here we have two stories about David offering hesed, steadfast love, to people who don't expect it, people who cannot demand it, and yet these two people respond completely differently to it. A lot of the purpose of these chapters is to show King David to us at his very best, right before he takes a sickening and disastrous turn for the worse. 
the rest of the book of 2 Samuel is going to be very depressing. But for now, in these chapters, in both of these episodes, David is reflecting uh, most clearly in his entire life the character and the behavior of God's future and final king, Jesus. Through this text, God wants to give us a greater understanding about Jesus' character as God's great and final king. But he also wants to show us how we should and how we should not respond to the steadfast, faithful love of God now offered to us in Jesus. So first in chapter 9, we have this story about the steadfast love of David accepted and so leading to blessing. David says, Is there anybody left of the house of Saul that I might show him kindness? Has said, for Jonathan's sake. Uh, you see it again in verse 3, where David says he's looking for somebody from Saul's family to whom he can show the kindness of God, the Hesed of God. Uh, you remember, if you've been around, that Saul was Israel's first king, uh, the king who quickly descended into disobedience and godlessness, uh, leading to God rejecting him uh, and the total disastrous fall of his kingdom. Saul had spent years and years jealously trying to kill David. Uh, even though David never did anything wrong to him and often pointed this out to Saul. After Saul's death, King David faced a long civil war over whether Israel was going to be now ruled by David or by one of Saul's followers. Saul was David's great enemy. But Saul's son, Jonathan, had become David's best friend. Uh, even though Jonathan was technically the heir to the throne of Israel, Jonathan recognized that David was the legitimate God-ordained king to replace his father. And so Jonathan submitted himself to David. Before David fled from Saul for good, uh, he promised Jonathan that when he took the throne, he would not wipe out Jonathan's family. That was what was normal in the ancient world. When someone ascended to a throne uh, from outside of the ruler's family, one of the first things you would do was to liquidate any possible claimants to the throne to secure your own place in it. But David promises Jonathan, I won't do that. I won't kill you. I won't kill your family. We will remain friends. So in a beautiful picture of how God loves and welcomes his enemies when they give up their claim to his throne, Jonathan should have been David's enemy, but became his beloved friend. David has promised not to kill Jonathan, or his family. But here you see David going even beyond that. Uh, he's not just saying, okay, I'll let you guys go. I won't kill you. David is looking for a way to show a positive blessing, to show positive kindness to Jonathan's family. And not just to Jonathan. You notice that David twice said, I'm looking for anybody related to Saul, his great enemy. He said, is there anyone around who's still related to Saul so that I can do something kind for him, so that I can show him faithfulness? David's looking to bring great blessing to those who have been his enemies. And so the root of David's steadfast love is this original covenant promise that he made to Jonathan. And the positive generosity of it all is rooted in God's own steadfast love, God's own commitment to blessing his enemies. That's why David calls it the kindness of God that he's looking to show. The ultimate root of God's love for us is not anything in us or anything that might be true about us down the road, 
But rather, the root of it all is God's own steadfast commitment and promise. It's God's character that ultimately matters, not our own. So that's the root of David's steadfast love. But look also at the recipient of David's steadfast love. Uh, One of Saul's old servants, this guy named Ziba, tells David that uh, Jonathan has this son that apparently David didn't know about named Mephibosheth. But Ziba tells him he's crippled in both of his feet. You might remember we heard back in chapter 4 of 2 Samuel about this guy Mephibosheth and how this had happened. Uh, As a five-year-old, when his nurse whisked him up to flee when she hears the news about Saul and Jonathan's defeat at the hands of the Philistines, she whisks up this little five-year-old boy to run away with him and she drops him or she falls on top of him and permanently ruins his feet and along with them any ability to walk or to work for the rest of his life. And so no wonder that David has never heard of him. In a world where nearly everybody was engaged in manual labor, And in a world where princes and kings were expected to be strong and mighty, ready to lead men into battle, this poor disabled man is a complete nobody. Uh, When you hear in verse 4 that he lives in a place called Lodabar, uh, that's a word that literally means no thing. This is a man who lives nowhere. He's a nobody. His life and his very identity are not just marked by weakness, but also by shame and humiliation. But in verse 5, David summons him, and Mephibosheth falls at his feet in this posture of submission. He says, Behold, I am your servant. You can imagine the tension there. He doesn't know why David has summoned him. Uh, He's expecting the usual routine from ancient Near Eastern kings. Uh, Given the way that they transferred power back then, all he can expect is destruction. But in an act of desperation... He seeks lowly servitude. Maybe David will accept that instead. But David says to him, don't be afraid. Don't fear. I will show you steadfast love, hesed, for the sake of your father Jonathan. You see here David showing Jonathan the grace of God for the lowest of the low. Uh, An old Scottish pastor describes God's love like this. He says, grace is love that stoops. While love radiates in every direction, grace radiates downwards. Love is between equal and equal or between inferior and superior. Grace, may I say, is love toward the bottom dog. That's exactly what David's doing here. David's steadfast love, it's rooted in this covenant promise Its recipient is this outsider of shameful weakness. But now look with me at the result of David's steadfast love. The first result is that Mephibosheth gets a restored home. A restored home. Verse 7, David says, I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. Apparently, uh, the family land had been confiscated from him. He's been living far away from it. In verse 9, David tells the servant Ziba, Everything that belonged to Saul, to all his house, I've given to your master's grandson. And then David gives Ziba his marching orders. He says, your job now for the rest of your life is to be in charge of managing this estate so that it's always cultivated, it's always productive, so that Mephibosheth gets to enjoy its fruit. He gets a restored home. The second thing he gets is a generous host. 
Four times in this chapter, we are told that this disabled man is going to be eating at the king's table. David's diner is serving breakfast, lunch, and dinner 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. Two times, David says to him, you shall eat at my table always. You're told in verse 11 that this means that, Saul, that Mephibosheth is now going to be like one of the king's sons. Uh, from a place of total obscurity and rejection, Mephibosheth has rocketed all the way to the top. He's now enjoying the king's provision and protection like he's one of David's own kids. Uh, thirdly, Mephibosheth has received a new life. He gets a restored home. He gets a generous host. He gets an entirely new life. He's a new person with a new identity. In verse 8, Mephibosheth is shocked by what David is promising him. He's shocked to receive his steadfast love. He says, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Uh, I recently saw a dead dog on the side of the railroad tracks by my house. Uh, but as gross as that was, it wasn't as gross as it was for people back then in Israel. Because a dog was an unclean animal. It was uh, not just physically repulsive, but also ritually repulsive. And on top of that, uh, it's also a dead dog. Mephibosheth is saying, I am worse than nothing. In his physical disability and in his relational isolation and in his vocational hopelessness, Mephibosheth was, in a sense, subhuman. But in welcoming Mephibosheth, not just to his porch, but all the way to the head table, in doing that, David is restoring his humanity. He's given him a new life, a new birth. All through here, the emphasis is on David's generosity, on how abundant all these things are that David's doing for him. Uh, he does not just give Mephibosheth a little token sprinkling of kindness to show off on Twitter or wherever what a nice guy he is and how generous he is. Uh, he does not say to Mephibosheth, uh, hey, me and my sons are eating pastrami today, but you can have peanut butter and jelly. Uh, he does not say to Mephibosheth, hey, uh, we're going to sit in the formal dining room, uh, but you can sit in the garage with your peanut butter and jelly. That's not what David does. David is not stingy with his grace. He's pouring it out, just like God does for us. Uh, the Apostle Paul, in Ephesians chapter 1 says that God is lavishing the riches of his grace on all those who trust in Christ, even though they were formerly God's enemies. The Apostle John, in his gospel, says that uh, from the overflowing abundance of Jesus himself, we are receiving grace upon grace. Think of a waterfall cascading over and over and over upon itself. John is saying that's the kind of grace you receive in Jesus. Grace upon grace. Paul says you are receiving in lavish measure God's riches when you come to Christ. Mephibosheth is a picture of all of us. Our isolation, our dependence, our humiliation, our estrangement from God's king, the way that we suffer the consequences of other people's failures and decisions and sins. But when you respond to God's love, God's offer of steadfast love for his enemies through Christ, just like Mephibosheth does here, you too receive an overflowing abundance 
of God's steadfast love. God brings us back home. He hosts a feast of his kindness and his provision. He gives us a new life. He restores our humanity for us. And so do you see this morning how good and how generous God is? So many of us think uh, that if God's going to have us, uh, he's only going to receive us with reluctance. That yeah, maybe God's sort of nice, uh, but he's kind of stingy with what he wants to do for me. We say, well, you don't understand. I'm crippled. Maybe physically, maybe metaphorically. Uh, we say, but I'm broken. Uh, but I've been far away for a long time. I've been living for a long time in a way that God would not like. Uh, I've really messed up my life. Uh, other people have really messed me up. All these excuses we have about why God maybe is going to be pretty stingy with us. We say, yeah, yeah, but you don't know what I was doing last night. Uh, you don't know how much I scream at my kids. Uh, I'm pretty sure I married the wrong person and my life is kind of a disaster. Maybe God's trying to just teach me a lesson, stick it to me. But King Jesus says to you, he says, yeah, 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 I know all that. But come and feast at my table. Receive the abundance of my provision. He says, you're part of my family now. You're going to be eating with me. So that's the steadfast love of David accepted. But now in chapter 10, ominously, we have this story of the steadfast love of David rejected. When it's accepted, it leads to blessing. When it's rejected, it leads to disaster. Uh, chapter 10, verse 1, you hear about the death of the king of the Ammonites. This is a neighboring group of people nearby Israel who were often antagonizing them, often their enemies. But in verse 2, David says he wants to deal loyally. Uh, this is that word again. David is literally saying, I want to do hesed. I want to do steadfast love uh, with this dead king's son. I'm going to send a group of men to offer my condolences to them. And so you have here in David's love for the outsider, uh, David's concern uh, for these people who have often been at odds with Israel, you're getting this beautiful picture of God's love for his own enemies. Jesus says that the reason why his disciples should love their enemies uh, is because our heavenly father loves his enemies. He says in Matthew chapter 5, God makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. He causes it to rain on the just and on the unjust. And so in the same way, David is offering faithful love to a group of people who have done Israel a great deal of harm in the past. But rather than accepting his love with humility like Mephibosheth did, in verse 3, we read that this new king, Hanan, responds with suspicious spite. He and his friends think that David is actually out to destroy their kingdom. And so they go out of their way to scorn and to shame his messengers. They... Uh, figuratively emasculate them by shaving off only half of their beards and cutting off their robes from the belly button downwards. Uh, they don't want David's kindness or love. They say, this is offensive to us. This is offensive to the way we're doing things and to the way we've been enjoying ruling our own lives. Uh, in the same way, for as many people today like to talk about God's love, the reality is that many, many people actually don't want it or at least they don't want it, as it actually exists. The way that God offers us his love, the way that God defines his love on his terms as an extension of his character. 
To many people, God's love and God's forgiveness are threatening because to accept them means that we need to admit that we failed. It means that we need to admit that we cannot be little kings and little queens. It means that we need to admit that like Mephibosheth, we are his servants, that our life depends entirely on him, that we are obligated to live under him and for him. Uh, We heard earlier in Jesus' parable about the wedding feast uh, that people can give all kinds of excuses about why they don't want to come to God's lavish feast. It doesn't have to be spite like we see here with the Ammonites. In Jesus' story, the reason that people don't want to come to his feast is because they're busy. I have work to do. I have business to do. I've got family stuff to deal with. All kinds of reasons people might reject God's steadfast love. It doesn't have to be spiteful. Many people, like the Ammonites here, like the people in Jesus' stories, many people would rather keep God at arm's length while continuing to tell themselves that we're doing just fine ruling over our own little fiefdoms on our own. And like with us, uh, you see here in chapter 10 with the Ammonites that mutiny loves company. In verse 6, they realize that they have angered David. David is no doormat. David is uh, no pushover. But instead of giving up their rebellion and saying, we're really sorry, that was really nice of you to do that, and we're very, very sorry. What can we do to make it right? Instead of doing that, Uh, they say, well, why don't we find some allies to help us fight against David? They rope their friends, the Syrians, into this insane war against God's anointed king, uh, this king who had only set out to bless them and to help them. Uh, Like many people today, they surround themselves with other people who also reject God's rule over them. Uh, We like to surround ourselves with people who tell us what we want to hear, who encourage us to do the things that we already want to do anyways. Uh, This is what the Ammonites are doing, uh, looking around for other people who can help them fight with David. Uh, They do manage to assemble this mighty army against David, but even so, they suffer total defeat. The Syrians try again on their own at the end of the chapter, but they get defeated again. So that verse 19, we hear that they make peace with Israel and they become subject to them. In the end, when you see chapters 9 and 10 next to each other, you realize, in the end, everybody has to submit to God's kingdom. Everybody has to submit to God's king of steadfast love and mercy. The only question is whether you are going to do it willingly and joyfully like Mephibosheth does or instead if you're going to be forced into submission through God bringing ruin upon you. That's what happens to the Ammonites and the Syrians. Psalm 2 opens by pointing out the ridiculous futility of how the kings of the earth sit around plotting against God and against his king and saying, hey, what are we doing with all these chains on? We don't need God's chains. Let's get rid of these chains. We can live on our own. Uh, The psalm says God's just laughing his head off as they do that. It ends with this somber call for the rulers of the earth to serve the Lord with fear, to rejoice with trembling. Think Mephibosheth. To kiss the son because his wrath is quickly kindled. But then listen to this. This is how the psalm ends. It immediately says, But blessed are all those who take refuge in him. David, like his greater and final son, Jesus, is not going to get pushed around. God's king comes to all of us offering love and mercy and reconciliation and pardon. But if we reject it, if we scornfully or apathetically tell him we're good, fine on our own, don't need it, 
I think we can figure this out. If we do that, the warning here is that all you can expect in the end is disaster. Even though many people and many Christians today tend to think of Jesus as kind of a milquetoast hippie in a dress, we need to understand that Jesus is deadly serious about the consequences of rejecting his steadfast love. Jesus speaks of hell more often than anybody else in the Bible. The book of Revelation, the final book of the Bible, is largely concerned with depicting this final disaster that God will bring on the earth for anyone who rejects him. The wrath of God uh, being carried out by Jesus himself now to an extent, but especially and climactically in the future. Uh, At one point in chapter 19, this is almost the very end of the book of Revelation, almost the very end of the Bible, uh, this climactic outpouring of God's anger on the earth is described as a deathly great feast. You have an angel in chapter 19 summoning all of the birds of the prey, all the birds of prey, all the vultures in the world saying, hey vultures, everybody gather around right as we're being told that Jesus is riding out to war. The angel says, come gather together for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of all men, both small and great. At the end of the battle, after we hear about Jesus swinging his sword, slaughtering everybody, we're told that the birds of the air gorge themselves. It's a gruesome picture. But in the same chapter, there's another and a greater and a better feast. A feast like Mephibosheth got to enjoy at David's table. This is an eternal feast for all those who, like Mephibosheth, admit their weakness. Everybody's weak. It's just a question of whether or not you will admit it. It's for those who admit their weakness, those who gladly accept God's steadfast love in Jesus because they can see how desperately needy they really are. The Bible ends with two feasts, one of them horrific, one of them wonderful. Which one will you be at? Listen to this description from Revelation 19 of this great and this final and this joyful feast, this future that is to an extent already enjoyed by us in the present, but ultimately it's going to become ours for anybody who gladly embraces God's steadfast love, anybody who enjoys this restored home, this generous host, this new life. Listen as we close with how this feast is described. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let's rejoice and exult. Let's give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we look forward with joy, but also with fear and trembling to this great marriage feast of the Lamb, when you will gather all of your people together, when you will lavish the riches of your provision upon us forever and ever and ever. This climax, this fulfillment, this resolution of everything in history, everything in our lives that seems so confusing and perplexing, so humiliating, so painful. 
you will tie all of these threads together into a beautiful tapestry. Lead us to see our need for your grace, for your steadfast love. Give us joy even now in this world as we look forward to the world to come. Teach us to be a people of humility and dependence and weakness, knowing that we are your servants. And that's a wonderful place to be. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.